Butts and Guts, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring your digestive and surgical health from end to end. So welcome to another episode of Butts and Guts. I'm your host, Scott Steele, Chairman of Colorectal Surgery here at the Cleveland Clinic in beautiful Cleveland, Ohio. And very excited to have Dr. Christine Lee here. Christine is one of our staff gastroenterologists and hepatologists here at the Cleveland Clinic. Christine, welcome to Butts and Guts. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So we'd like to have all of our guests start out. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Where did you train? How to come to the point that you're here at the Cleveland Clinic? Um, well, I grew up in a small suburb of Dayton. Um, did most of my ed- entire education there from probably K through college. I went to med school at Wright State School of Medicine. Then I joined the Air Force. I was active duty for 10 years finished my active duty commitment at Travis Air Force Base in California. And then from there came to Clean Clinic in 2009, and I've been here ever since. Fantastic. And thank you for your service as somebody else who had a little bit of military time. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about irritable bowel syndrome. And I can tell from just watching TV, there's all sorts of stuff about irritable bowel syndrome everywhere. Let's start really at the high level. What is irritable bowel syndrome? So irritable bowel syndrome is where anatomically and structurally all the parts or the organs is not diseased per se, but how they work together in coordination is a little off. It can be a wide variety of symptoms from people to people. It can just be bloating or change in bowel habits and pain to all extremes where it could not only decrease your quality of life, but actually be very dysfunctional to your uh, productivity and your family life. So what are the most common types of symptoms that patients could experience that they may wind up with a diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome or IBS? Most of the people that come see me are due to debilitating pain or incontrollable bowel movements, extreme urgency, frequency, and just a decreasing quality of their life where they feel like their bowel habits or their pain rules their life. So... I find it hard to believe that there's not some listener out there that's like at some stage doesn't feel crampy abdominal pain or sometimes they got a little bit of diarrhea or sometimes they have a little bit of constipation. What's the medical definition of IBS and how is that diagnosed? Well, so there's a Rome 4 criteria where you have more than one symptom per week for the last at least three months where you have a change in bowel habits or pain or sense of incomplete defecation or difficulty with straining or achieving a bowel movement. Could you talk a little bit more about the timeline? You just have to have one of those following conditions. Well, because it has such a wide variety of presentation, you could kind of classify it into constipation type. There's a diarrhea type. There's a mixed type. And then there's another type where it has to do with a sense of incomplete defecation. And I heard a rumor out there that uh, Rome 4 means that all these people got together in Rome and come up with this definition. Is that true? Well, that's actually well, true. That's a, good, that's a good place to basically go and determine uh, what makes a uh, IBS. So how is IBS different than IBD? IBD stands for inflammatory bowel disease. It's, a, it's an organic disorder where it's uh, autoimmune and you have structural abnormalities. There's mucosal breakdown, there's ulcerations, there's inflammation that you could undisputably see um, biopsy visible on CT scans or endoscopy and you can take biopsies and histologically you can have evidence of the pathophysiology that's going on. For IBS, uh, structurally everything's intact. There's no mucosal damage, there's no mucosal inflammation, there's no breakdown to the eye and on histologic evaluations, it's normal. So that's why it's considered a syndrome. However, it can be just as debilitating because 
It's not the structure itself, it's how it works in coordination. Your bow is pretty complicated. It's not just its parts by itself. It has to actually be coordinated like a wave in a football field. You see how when everybody stands up in a coordinated fashion, you see this uh, wonderful wave that goes through. So your motility is about the same thing. It's not about contraction. It's not about frequency. It's not all about the waves. They all have to work together. So the strength of the contraction, the frequency, the motility, the movement, they all have to be in a coordinated fashion. Otherwise, you don't have net movement forward. And that's why IBS stands for irritable bowel syndrome. It's not an inflammatory process. It's not an organic disease per se, but it's a compilation of all the symptoms rolled up in one that causes unwanted discomfort to the patient. So we have both healthcare providers as well as patients that listen to the podcast. So let's let's talk a little bit first from the patient aspect of it. So from the patient aspect, if I'm listening to this, I'm thinking, God, that's me. I have the crampy abdominal pain. I have all the things that she mentioned in terms of that Rome 4 criteria. First, is there anything that I can do to kind of change that around on my own? And then second, when should I make a determination that I need to go see a doctor about this? The answer to the first, the simple things that someone could do on their own would be regularity. Try to make sure that you have a regular schedule. You eat uh, three meals a day, um, have a bowel movement first thing in the morning, or try to utilize the circadian rhythm where you have a bowel movement after a meal when it's convenient, and just try to exercise regularly, stress management, and eat healthy. Eat lots of fiber, eat healthy foods, low on fats and low on sugars, and do those things first. If those measures fail to improve your symptoms or you develop what we call classic alarm features like unexplainable weight loss, bleeding that's not just once but persistent and progressive, fatigue that's not just one day but persistent and progressive, things that you've been told anemia, nocturnal symptoms, escalation of symptoms that don't come and go, but come and stay and escalate over time. Those are what we call classic alarm features, and those you probably should seek medical attention as soon as possible. So now from the healthcare provider's perspective, if I'm a primary care out there and you know not a specialist, and somebody comes into me and they have all these things, um, before I refer them, what things would you expect that a primary care doc would handle kind of on their level before they would decide to try to advance them on to a gastroenterologist or another specialist in IBS? That's a great question. The best thing is to actually go down to basics. Sit down with the patient and talk to the patient and find out what's really the major factor in their life. Is it, did they just go through a divorce? Are they going through a major move? Did they just do a mission trip and they had complete change in their diet? You know, oftentimes a lot of the patients have the answers. You just have to get it from them. So a lot of times it takes a little time, but if you can sit down with them and talk with them and get a background history, that's very, very important to their overall getting well. The second point I'd like to mention is that not all IBS are the same. There's a huge spectrum, wide variety of symptoms. Some people's IBS may be due to stress-related. Some may be just hormonally related. There's more serotonin receptors in the gut than in your brain. The other things that are very simple but overlooked are just medication side effects. 
the time and era that we live in right now, so many patients are on so many medications, and some medications that the primary care doctors are not aware of. They take allergy medicines over the counter that cause constipation, drying out of the mucosa that can cause a lot of side effects. A lot of people are on blood pressure medicines that can change your motility and cause change in your bowel regularities. Some people have just recently gone to their GP and got an antibiotic for a UTI and it changes your microbiome or your gut flora. So many triggers are out there for every IBS patient. It's important to sit down and just kind of go through their alarm features or their risk factors. Oftentimes we also see people who've had hip replacement or knee replacement and because they've been on post-op analgesics, even if it's 10 days or two weeks, that can greatly alter your bowel regularity. And then just the fact of decreased physical activity, because now they can't bear weight on their hip or their knee, they're not out, they're not up, they're not walking, they're not doing their exercises. And all of that plays a huge role. Uh, I've also seen patients for second and third opinions, and for whatever reason, they didn't want to give up the information. They just had a liposuction or they had a tummy tuck. All of those things play a huge role in exacerbating or triggering uh, irritable bowel syndrome. The greatest benefit is to just sit down and talk with them and get their background history. So you mentioned some really interesting things there. And one of the things I like to do here is to kind of break through what's, what's reality and what are some myths. So patients say all the time, like, I swear to you, I'm not crazy. I really feel these things. I know all my tests are normal. Am I crazy? Along those lines, what is the connection between kind of the the human emotions and all of the the kind of the mental things that we go through, anxiety, depression, or anxiousness uh, in, in the gut? You know, the neurotransmitters, the serotonin receptor is one example. We know for a fact that there's more serotonin receptors in the intestinal tract than in your brain. And these neurotransmitters play a role in communication. So there are people who are constipated, but they don't get that signal to their brain. So they have no idea that they suffer from chronic constipation until they present in the ER with a perforated diverticulitis. Well, you know, that doesn't happen from a brief period of constipation. That's years, decades of constipation that has progressed into diverticular disease and from diverticular disease to diverticulitis to you know, perforation or an abscess. So those neurotransmitter plays a huge role. So in some people, their neurotransmitter communication is decreased and they don't get that signal, so they're not aware. On the other spectrum, you have people who have heightened neurotransmitters, so they feel everything. Things that are just normal bowel movement or stool or gas passing that you and I wouldn't even blink an eye on, to them, it's it's real. It's 10 out of 10 pain because their neural receptors are super sensitized. They have more receptors than someone else, and it's exponential. So it's real pain, but they experience excruciating pain uh, for things that are normally not excruciating pain for the rest of us. So walk me through a patient appointment. I come to see you because I have IBS. I'm either referred directly or I've seen my primary care doc. I've tried to be regular. I've tried to do all this. What's a typical patient appointment with you? And then is there any other testing or anything that you would get on them if it hasn't been done? So a typical appointment is to actually sit down and again, kind of get the background feel. How long has it been going on? How severe is it? How 
how frequently is it occurring, how debilitating is it for that individual, and then go back and figure out what's already been done. Do they have basic evaluations like a, a CBC? Are they anemic? What's their weight? Is their weight stable? Had they had a age-appropriate cancer screening, like colon cancer screening and whatnot? And then depending on their symptoms, um, then you tailor what other tests, if at all, need to be done beyond that. And so is there any uh, invasive testing that you'll have to do at the clinic appointment or following on from that? Is there any radiographs that is a standard workup for IBS? You mentioned that a lot of cases, many of the patients have had some of these things before they reach you, but what are the types of kind of broad range testing that they may get? Sure. We try to start with non-invasive tests first. So again, like baseline chemistries, uh, CBC, and then age-appropriate screening like colonoscopies and maybe even an upper endoscopy with small bowel biopsies to make sure that there isn't anything microscopic, like sometimes a celiac sprue and whatnot. Beyond that, there are SITS marker studies that are non-invasive, but it gives us an idea of, is it a motility issue? How long does it take for something to transfer from your right colon to mid colon to left colon and then exit? Is it not a transfer issue, but is it more of a pelvic floor dysfunction where they can't empty completely? So then there's anal rectal manometry. There's barium studies that you can do to see if there's a prolapse or the manometry also can assess to the sphincter tone and muscle, um, how strong it is or how not strong they have. There's also MRI studies like MR enterographies that can help for structural anatomical abnormalities and uh, capsule endoscopies can also kind of give us an idea of the small bowel, but again, those are considered a little bit more invasive and we'd have to kind of go through the risks and benefits with the patients for those. So understanding that you said off the bat that there's a really wide variety of presentations and symptoms that patients may have and you've done a pretty thorough job at making sure it's not medicated or inflammatory, infectious, and all that stuff is ruled out. What's your general approach to treatment for these patients? So what I've learned the last 13 years of doing GI is that not two IBS patients are the same. Um, and I think my biggest pearl would be don't try to do one size fits all to every person. Some patients may be very heavily stress mediated. Some person may be heavily neurotransmitter mediated. Some may be just medication mediated. Some people may be frequent antibiotic users and so it's more of a microbiome um, problem. Others may be more exercise and muscle tone and strengthening and biofeedback is their solution. So I try not to get into one size fits all for everyone because it won't and you'll have failures and then you know without results you have lack of trust and then more frustration. So you really, really need to listen to the patient, evaluate the patient and tailor the treatment specific to that patient and their needs. So kind of running through a few of the more common things, just uh, your, your initial thoughts on these. Fiber, does fiber have a role in treatment of IBS? Fiber definitely has a role. We clearly don't get enough fiber in our diet. You know, what a recommended dose is 25 to 35 grams per day, depending on your sex and body type and how much calories you intake. The other thing is that not all fibers are the same. People can be very meticulous and count their fibers and, and think they meet their goal, but some fibers 
fibers are just very processed, like the soluble fibers, extremely processed. They dissolve easily with water and you can drink it with water. And it's still good. Some fiber is still better than no fiber, but understand that processed fibers doesn't have as much punch as the insoluble fibers. Uh, that being said, insoluble fibers take more work. <laughs> it's harder to get insoluble fiber in your diet, but they do have more of a punch. So it's not all about the numbers. Did you get your requirement? It's about the quality of the fibers that you get. Uh, the second part is activity. Uh, you know, the muscle strength of your contraction has a huge role. So you gotta stay fit, try to exercise regularly, try to work on conditioning, and then Lifestyle, you know, it's difficult for the executives because they sit most of the time where they have international travel. Prolonged sitting, I don't mean two hours, but I mean prolonged sitting, eight to 10 hours, uh, 15 hour flights or 10 hour board meetings. Those prolonged sittings really do aid in decreasing the motility and the muscle strength of your contraction. So lifestyle modification. What about the, uh, the anti-spasm drugs? So anti-spasm medications are great for symptom relief. So if your colons are overstretched or they're in a spasm and you're having a lot of spasm pain that's debilitating, then antispasmodic plays a huge role, giving them relief. But remember, that's just a symptom relief. It's not getting to the root of the problem. And I used to see a lot of TV commercials from various pharmaceutical companies that would advertise a pill. Are they around anymore? They definitely had a role. Uh, there were some that were really good, the serotonin receptor uh, drugs. Unfortunately, they're no longer available in the U.S., so I think they are working on cousin variations of the serotonin receptors that's in line to be available very soon. They're just cleaning up the side effects so that it's not only helpful but safe for the community. The other medications, again, it has to tailor to their specific symptoms. If they're fast transit, then medications that work on slowing down would help. If their trouble is that it's actually slow transit, then those drugs would not be in their best favor. So I've gone and seen a doctor. How can they then gain control over their IBS-type symptoms? I think if it's something mild where you can work on the things that we talked about, like improving their diet, making sure you have regular exercise, hydrating well, and getting the required fiber that you should consume, if that helps, then that's all you need. If it's beyond that, then you really do need to establish a good rapport with your primary care doctor or a gastroenterologist or a physician that they have a good relationship with. And understand it's not gonna be a one-time visit. It didn't take one day for them to develop to the point where they are. It may take uh, several visits over a long period of time to get improvements. But it's about getting a good idea as far as what their symptoms are and then targeting those symptoms and learning their triggers and avoiding their triggers and figure out what therapy works best for them. And is there any association between IBS and cancer? There's not an organic relationship with IBS and cancer, but that being said, a lot of people with IBS may develop depression and they take other medications, which could add into more stress and more comorbidities, and it would be more of a, not a direct cause and effect, but association. Yeah, it's just something that we always want to make sure that we're doing our average risk and advanced risk colorectal cancer screening. So talking a little bit more about risk factors, is IBS something that affects adults only? Well, that's a great question. Um, oftentimes when I see patients, they will tell me 
they've had it their whole life. Um, that's the common theme. They can't pinpoint exactly when it started. It's almost like your hair growing. It starts very slowly and insidiously to a point where now it impacts their life. So they do remember a certain point, but they can't pinpoint the exact time that it started. But most patients will tell you they've had this their whole life. So it involves a wide range of patients from children all the way to adulthood. And we know that constipation is pretty common in kids. So for the parents listening out there, is this just something that they should bring up to the pediatrician or to their primary care provider? Or is this something that they need to say, oh my gosh, my child is a little bit more constipated or a little bit more crampy, a little bit more bloaty and get them in right away? Oh, get them, get them in. Prevention is the key. Your colon is a muscular organ that has great stretch kind of almost like pantyhose. But if you overstretch or overabuse for too long, it loses the elasticity. It loses that recoil. So by the time they come to me, it's more about symptom management. But if you get this early on and establish the diagnosis and jump on the treatment right away, Prevention is key. Before you lose elasticity, you lose that recoil, you lose uh, muscle tone or the ability to sense that they're constipated. Uh, prevention is huge. So I would highly recommend getting in with your pediatrician and work towards prevention. So we'd like to end up with some quick takes. So just some things to get to know you just a little bit better. So first of all, what's your favorite sport or activity? Uh, favorite sports, volleyball. And what's your favorite meal? Italian. And what is the last book that you read? Uh, Little Women with my daughter, Carolyn. <laughs> That's fantastic. And so you grew up in Dayton, but tell us something that you like here about living in Cleveland. Um, you know, it's the community. Um, I've always, I grew up in a small suburb where the community was outstanding. Everybody knew everybody. And then I spent next 10 years in active duty Air Force, and that's an amazing community. It's a tight network where everybody has everybody's back and everybody knows everyone. Uh, Cleveland has been the same for me. You know, the patient population I serve is the community that I live in. And so they're my neighbors, they're my family, they're my friends, they're my friends' family. So the community out here is just amazing. Well, that's fantastic. And so to learn more about IBS, please download our free bowel disorders treatment guide at clevelandclinic.org slash bowel disorders. And to make an appointment with a Cleveland Clinic specialist, please call 216-444-7000. That's 216 216- 444-7000. Please also consider subscribing to the Butts and Guts podcast in iTunes and leave a rating or review. Christine, thanks so much for being here as a guest on Butts and Guts. Thank you for having me. That wraps things up here at Cleveland Clinic. Until next time, thanks for listening to Butts and Guts.